You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Music fans, welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and I got my co-host with me, Stephanie Seymour. Howdy. And Rob Levy. Greetings and felicitations. And we are joined by a very, very special guest today. We have musician, songwriter, record producer, Gary Clark. He's a former member of bands like Danny Wilson, King L, and Transistor collaborator with numerous artists and uh, more recently co-composed and co-performed the music of the 2016 film sing street mr clark thank you so much for joining us all the way from scotland it's my pleasure it's lovely to meet you all we're so happy you're here gary we're totally stoked thank you i just want to give the listener sort of a a, a more of an uh, in-depth overview of your history just real Gonna run it down as quick as I can. Tell me if I'm lying about anything. Okay. How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's 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 I'll a long list. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Gary began his career in the late '80s as front person of the Scottish band Danny Wilson, writing and singing the band's 1987 international hit "Mary's Prayer." Love it. Throughout the '90s and 2000s, he recorded one solo album and two albums as a member of King L and Transistor, while also songwriting and producing for. So many other artists like Natalie Imbruglia, Liz Fair, Lloyd Cole, Melanie C., The Veronicas, Demi Lovato. Um, in 2016, he co-wrote or wrote the original songs and score for John Carney's movie Sing Street, which, oh boy, we're going to delve into that. <laughs> His song Drive It Like You Stole It from that movie has won multiple awards and just placed at number 11 in Rolling Stone's Best Songs by Fake Artists list. He's won mm-hmm. multiple songwriting awards. His songs have appeared in a wide variety of TV shows and movies like There's Something About Mary, Charlie's Angels, Grey's Anatomy, Teen Wolf, and Pretty Little Liars. He was executive music producer and composer on two seasons of Amazon's Modern Love. He teamed up again with John Carney to create the songs and score for Carney's latest mu- movie, Flora and Son, which previewed at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival to rapturous reviews He's currently the composer and co-lyricist of the forthcoming Nanny McPhee musical with Dame Emma Thompson. Ladies and gentlemen, is anyone busier than Gary Clark? Please welcome him to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steph. I can't believe how much of that you, you got in there and how much you got right. It's usually, you know, usually got to correct it all. Like okay, <laughs> good. I'm glad, I'm glad that most of that wasn't lies. <laughs> no, it's not true. So I just want to start off uh, asking you about when you were a singer and songwriter in your first band, Danny Wilson. I mean, mm-hmm. I say first band, you, you probably had like some, you know, ba- you know, high school bands or stuff like that. But were your aspirations at that early time to mainly be the artist or were you already thinking then about writing for other artists? I mean, like what were your what were your goals and what was the thought process? Um, it, it was probably in my mind well, no, it was definitely in my mind, and I had sort of attempted to write a few songs for other people in the past. Um, but my dad 
was a huge fan of the kind of great American songbook and uh, he loved to name check the songwriters. So even if he was listening to a Sinatra record, he would say, oh, that was written by Sammy Khan or whatever, you know. And, and mm -hmm. I kind of grew up in a household where songwriters were respected for a start. But um, he loved the idea of the backroom guys and gals who were making these, making a huge impact on the music that people didn't, you know, didn't see them. So that was, that was kind of a... I think that was an early inspiration and I always loved the idea because of that of writing for other people but certainly being an artist at that time was definitely the obsession you know That's yeah during that time in the 80s when you had pop stardom you're on smash hits mm -hmm. you know you're on you're on like all these American sort of TV shows and you're making the rounds how did that sort of window of 80s stardom affect you as an artist today well to be honest with you I sort of found myself in it and didn't enjoy it very much. What I actually love is the creative process. I love the creation of music from the songwriting, the lyrics, the studio, the whole, that whole thing was kind of my obsession. And a lot of the bands that I loved, like Steely Dan and the Beatles were really kind of studio bands and they kind of made their art. Like, and I actually went to art college for a very brief period of time. And so a lot of my friends were artists and, they would work alone in rooms and create these amazing things. And that was kind of my comfort zone, still is actually, you know. Um, yeah. And then suddenly I was sort of thrust into something that I wasn't very comfortable with, to be honest. And um, I was a lot shyer when I was younger as well. But but the, the amount of time that you spend, once you have a hit particularly, the amount of time that you spend doing promotion as opposed to the creative stuff, is kind of soul destroying, you know. And I remember being on a tour bus um, along, we were doing festivals in Europe and just getting this sense of, I just want to smash this window and get out of this bus and go back to the studio, you know. <laughs> and, uh, so I wasn't really comfortable with it, if I'm honest. Which, um, And you kind of touched upon songwriting a little bit. Can you kind of talk about what you think the key is to good songwriting? Well, it used to be, I would say that I, I'm not um, trained in any way. I don't read music. Um, I'm trained, I just taught myself by ear and I had a couple of guys at school taught me things on guitar and stuff. But um, everything I've learned, I've learned by ear and by listening to music and listening to records. So, so as an artist, I was really just creating from that place of imagination there. And um, I would say that as my career sort of moved into the area of collaborating with other songwriters, working in the United States in particular, the craft is very high, particularly in Nashville, LA, these places, you know, um, the craft of songwriting is, is really super high. And um, I learned a lot from working with other writers, other producers. I'd say that my, my knowledge of the craft is kind of higher now than it was when I was making those records. So it probably makes it a little more, I'm not going to say easy, because it's not easy, but I sort of know how to navigate the beginning to end thing yeah. a little bit quicker, I think. And I guess some of it too is osmosis, because you heard all these great records growing up too. So you kind well, of knew what yeah. the standard was. It's not, it's 80 to 90% osmosis yeah. really. Yeah. But you can learn stuff from songwriters. I always remember working with um, Lindy Robbins and we were, 
writing a verse and she explained to me why she moved the first verse into the second verse position and vice versa. And it made so much sense and it made the song so much stronger that you never make that mistake again, you know? Yeah. Um, your your melodies and your knack of, you know, get catching that that hook and, and your lyrics are so moving. I mean, you just really have a knack for such great pop songs. And like as a songwriter myself, I always like to know how someone's process is like, I, do you usually write lyrics first or do you write, get the music first or is it, is it like a combo? How does that work for you? Um, well, I constantly keep an ear to the ground for great titles or ideas because they're the hardest thing is, you know, you can have a great piece of music, but if you don't have a great idea for the song, then it's never going to go anywhere. So, and Drive It Like You Stole It that you mentioned is a really good example of that. Yes. I, um the John Carney, the director, gave me um, a brief. It's what you see in the film, really. And he said, "It just had, we need a song here that's like uplifting, empowering for these kids to sing at this. It's like a fantasy sequence. And um, I think he mentioned Hollow Notes and Huey Lewis and the News. And, and then I always remember those Huey Lewis songs in particular always had these really hard punchlines. Yes. You know? And very much like um, Shania Twain songs, actually. I always think she had, was great at that thing. And I I knew that I needed a, a really strong title, so I just went through. I mean, I used to keep notebooks and notebooks, but now it's all on your phone, you know, or your laptop. But I just went through my notes and was looking for a title, and I found Drive It Like You Stole It and sort of instantly, oh, that's cool. And then I started jamming the music. But usually I would say I start jamming music, and then I'll go... What does this feel like? Uh, might be, it depends on the circumstances because working for a, like a script in a musical or something, you, you're pretty much told what's happening there and then. And it then becomes like, what's the strongest thing to say at this particular point in time? So you're kind of starting lyrically there. But just in the general writing of song, I, I like to start with music before I get too deeply into lyrics because the, the, the melody can have a real effect on the scan of the words. You know. When you're in the songwriting process and you're demoing a song, do you tend to lean more on guitar, keyboard, or what? Do you work with a drum machine? How, how, what's your process like? Um. Most of the stuff I do, I know it has to be demoed to a really high standard. And so the, in Pro Tools now, I'm just used to working um, whatever it takes to get that demo from my head into okay. reality. So, you know, and that really is song dependent because mm -hmm. it's a song that's just, say, piano, and you know you're going to add some strings, you would start with the piano. But if it's something that's very beat-heavy, then you would start with the beat. So, for instance, I'll go back to Drive It Like You Stole It. Once I got that title and John had mentioned um, Hollow Notes, I started to think about that beat. And then once – so I programmed the beat, and then I got up a big 80s synth sound and just started playing chords. And quite quickly I found those big, glorious sort of sounds that you would associate with the 80s because I knew that's what he wanted. So – um, so yeah, d d depends on the material, but I'm kind of making the demo as I'm writing the song. And I actually like to get to a point where I can listen to some kind of rough track, have that open on my computer and have a notes open 
and then go but write the lyric at that point. And sometimes I'll even jump on the mic and sing stuff in, either guide lyrics or, mm-hmm. um, or it might be the fact. I might just get a verse and I'll go, okay, I'll put the verse in now, and then that'll help me with the next bit. Or, you know, they're hand in hand at the moment. I think. This this is a question I was going to ask later in the interview when we get heavily into Sing Street. But since we're already talking about the song, I'm curious to know how specific the either the script or the description was when you were composing the songs for the film. Like, did were you told at this point the, the boys are very influenced by Hollow Notes. At this point, they're very influenced by Duran Duran. And, yeah. and, you know, how specifically were you told this, the song for this scene needs to feel like it's influenced by X song or X band? Yeah. Well, John Carney is a great musician himself, and he and I wrote a lot of the songs together. Some of them started from John's ideas, and his he he would send me a file, and it would be called the cure or you know one was called talking heads you know? so, <laughs> oh nice um so I, I i wasn't in any doubt of what kind of vibe he was <laughs> you know? um, so, yeah and also in the script that was pretty clear and i had a full script at that point yeah um, that was all written really quickly sing street actually i know john had started some of those ideas mm-hmm. but um it was a matter of it was less than a month, you know, it was all written and recorded. Wow. Did he, did he have a, I want to know if John had a uh, idea in his head for the, the scene for, for the, for the drive, like you stole it scene. It was, I mean, to me, it was like a back to the future. Mm-hmm. Back to the future, actually. Yeah, that rings a bell. Um, yeah, the scene was very well described. John's great with words and it was, it was very well described in the, in the script. Mm-hmm. And we knew it was the only point in the movie where you're really in his head. It's not, um, it is a fantasy. Right. So it's a fantasy sequence. Um, it was, and yeah, he described exactly the the um, girls in 50s dresses and all that, the, the way the stage would look and, mm-hmm. um, and how the guys would be dressed. And yeah, I had a really clear picture of it. Yeah, he's great at that. I, I, I often wonder for that film, I mean, it, it is such a encapsulation perfectly of, of that period of time, 1985, I guess it was, just mm-hmm. when when the DIY spirit of the whole scene was was coming into play mm-hmm. and like kids were doing bands. I mean, if you if anyone was in a band at that time who you could, it's it, I, I instantly related to it. It was just like that was me, you know, in high school. It's um, me and it's John as well. Yeah. In school bands, you know, so we can definitely relate. And I love that the fact that, you know, n- there was a depiction of that of that time that was very um, on point. There's a lot of movies that that harken back to that era and they really overdo it with the hair or the makeup or the clothes. This was I mean, you knew it was 80s, but it was uh, very tastefully done and it wasn't overblown and fake, you know? Yeah, I mean. In the process, John showed me a picture of him in his school band, and it is literally Sing Street. Ah. I mean, it's nuts. It's crazy. You just so go, fantastic. wow, look at that, like the, the living room where they're rehearsed, you know. Yeah. It's, it's exactly that photograph. So he was drawing from real experience, and um, I think you can tell. I think that's what it is, you know. Yeah. 
there are a lot of movies that sort of try to paint even the music business and never quite seem to get it right. It's always, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's a little, a little fakeness to it, mm-hmm. but this is so very authentic. And I mean, you had to, you and John had to write songs that were very almost, lyr- they were lyrically and musically immature first. Mm-hmm. You Starting mm-hmm. out, you know, when the ba- as the band was just forming and then you had to, progress and, and make the songs better. But how did you get back into that mindset of like a 15-year-old high school boy writing songs? For the first it's quite time? funny because I think you can hear it at the end of the movie, but the jam session that we did in the studio for what became the Riddle of the Model, which is the first song that they write, <laughs> um, the band were playing it too well. <laughs> and it was kind of <laughs> like, I can remember very clearly John going, no, nah, no, nah, you've got to be more shite. you got to remember what it was like when you were 14 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, uh, and it was him playing the, the guitar riff, and he was like deliberately playing. It was a really fun session that one. Yeah, because there's definitely. I mean, you listen to that song, and there's you know things are off. They're not meshing. The drum beats off a little bit with the guitar. It's great. It's great, but it's like it wasn't ten minutes before. It sounded really good. <laughs> <laughs> and John was like, "No, you guys are not getting this." You know. <laughs> There's another song that I want to, like, I think Up is so amazing. I know it's really, mm-hmm. again, it's a simple song, but that chorus is, there's got such a hook. Um, I want to know if the lead actor who played, Co- well, Cosmo, his nickname in the movie, Ferdia, yeah. Does, mm-hmm. Did he have any input at all into the songwriting process? Because he had to sing those songs. No, not the songwriting process. No, we mm-hmm. had to teach the songs in the studio. That song was interesting because that was very much a, it started out as very much a John's song. Um, he sent me a version of him jamming it out in the studio with a band, and it didn't have a chorus. It had all the other bits of melody and stuff. And the first version that I sent him back, I just started to ad lib over the end, and I actually sang the going up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he goes, that's the chorus. Yeah. So I batted it back to me, and I went, oh, got the, right, good. And then I put the chorus in, but... The really the verses and the pre and stuff was what as pretty close to as it is not so much lyrically because I do mostly the lyrics but the certainly the, the melodies and the chords of the verse and the pre were all done by John and then he you know responded to my ad lib and, and then came. you presented the songs to I guess is Ferdia the only uh, actor that actually played uh, or did anything on the recordings for the songs. Yeah, let me think about that, actually. In this movie, yeah, I think he was. Mm -hmm. We had a house band, um, and John and I were both playing in that band as well. Mm -hmm. We recorded all the backing tracks live, but we knew what the songs were by that time. I sang guide vocals, and then Ferdia came in. I must have had to check his key beforehand. I guess I must have done some Zoom with him or something, but... um, were, were, was the rest of the cast musicians? Because they they mime to the song pretty well. I mean, it looks like they are actually playing. So were they? Did they have to be taught how to match a drum rhythm or something, or did they did they know already and just have to learn the movements for the song? Well, the guy who played Eamon um, is actually a really good actor, but he's a really good musician as well, um, and so he. It looks very convincing on the guitar and stuff. He's actually playing the right parts and things. Yeah. Um, I wasn't on, I was on set for a couple of bits. I was on set for Drive It Like You Stole It, but 
John, being such a good musician, would probably have taught them the stuff right there and then, I would imagine. But then he would have auditioned things like the drummer and stuff, and he would have had to check that they looked like they can play, and he would know. You mm -hmm. know. Having already seen the script and everything as you're working on the songs, what did you think of the the casting? Did you think oh. that... I mean, I thought Ferdia was fantastic. What did you think of the rest of the cast, even up to the parents? Like, did you think that they, did they sort of match what you were envisioning in your head as you read the script? I would say probably that they were better. What you, <laughs> what you have to remember is the only one that I met, oh no, obviously I met a couple of people when I went on set, but the Ferdia was the one that I spent a lot of time with in the studio. Um, and, you see, this film that I've just done with John, I was music producer on it, so I was much more hands-on than I was on Sing Street. On Sing Street, I was in Scotland, John was in Dublin. We were pinging ideas backwards and forwards until he went, look, just come over and we'll just... He literally said to me, you know what, just come over and we'll just start recording this stuff. <laughs> and I got there the next day and the band were already in the studio. <laughs> I booked the band. And I was like, whoa, okay. And I was running back to my hotel room, writing lyric, finishing off bits of lyrics. And, and the Cure song was written in my hotel room. Yeah, Sing Street, so it was really kind of, I was only in there and then out again. And then I didn't hear anything else about it. And I was like, oh, maybe that movie's never, ever going to come out. You know, wow. I, I literally didn't know what was going on. And then I kind of heard that it made a couple of festivals. But I wasn't there. And... I, I, um, and I remember, I think, Ferdia and I've forgotten the actor's name, but the guy who played Eamon did some live acoustic stuff at, I think, Sundance or something. Mm -hmm. I heard about that. And then they had a screening in Dublin, and I was invited, and I went and I saw the movie for the first time in a, in a screening with audience. Mm -hmm. um, and I was really expecting, I don't know, like I knew too much or I, I was going to see the cracks, you know. And, then, and I actually just got into it and watched it as a movie and just totally enjoyed it. <laughs> you know? so it was, it was the, that was very different from the sort of latest experience where I'm seeing every single frame as it kind of goes, you know. I was a lot more detached from Sing Street, apart from the music. Obviously. So, yeah, talk mm -hmm. about that, the new film. Um, I know, like I, we said, it was premiered at Sundance, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, that's out now. Is it, is it out to the public right now? No, um, Sundance was uh, where they take, really, they, there was a big rush to get it ready for Sundance because that's where they kind of try to get a distributor. And it went so well that they ended up signing it to Apple. So Apple will release it um, later this year. I don't have a date yet. but Fantastic. Happened, so. it will be, John reckons it will probably be out in the summer. Because you know it's it's made and it's ready to roll now. So, was this a or I don't know how much you can divulge really, but is it a movie that um, features songs as the previous film, as Sing Street did, or is it more like you were scoring a film? You know, was it? Uh, I did both, but the um, it's different in tone from Sing Street. It's more adult, um, although there are some. There's a young guy who's fourteen in it who has some great moments and some great songs. But um, the story is really about, played by Eve Hewson, Flora kind of discovering herself through music 
and the relationship she has with a guitar teacher online and her relationship with her kind of uh, hooligan young 14-year-old son. And they they kind of find each other through music as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't really... this. Original songs don't really kick in until somewhere in Act Two, so um, and then starts to really pick up after that. But the, I mean, musically, mm-hmm. so it's not like Sing Street. That's much more. Uh, this kind of the music grows through this this movie, and a lot of it's very acoustic. Um, that because she's playing in an intimate sort of situation with her guitar teacher sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. But there are some more produced tracks as well. Um, the young kid makes electronic music on his laptop and has a friend who's a rapper, and I wrote a song for him. And, <laughs> that must have been fun. Yeah, I got to rap in an Irish accent. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'll get to do that again. <laughs> that was your one and only shot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Gary, the movie gets made, and you find out it's going to become a musical. Um, as a composer, can you kind of talk about what you have to do when your songs that you do for a, mu- for a movie become songs for a musical? Is there anything different you have to do or do you have to mess with the arranging? Do you have to work with the composer? How does that whole process work? The first musical that came to me was Nanny McPhee, and it was based on the fact that the producer had seen Sing Street and she thought I'd be good for it. And then I went and met Emma Thompson and we got along really well. And Emma had a bunch of lyric ideas, which she sent to me. And we started developing this way before the whole COVID thing happened. While we were developing that, Sing Street got picked up as a musical. And the first place it was opening was at the New York Theatre Workshop. So they did a whole version of that that I wasn't really that involved in. I was kind of you know, I was getting all the information, but I wasn't really hands-on. And then when they did New York Theatre Workshop, they got picked up to go on Broadway. And at that point, they wanted to make some changes. And the changes that they really wanted to make was to get the music back closer to what it was in the film, because it had kind of gone off on a journey. Mm-hmm. The songs were still the same, but a lot of the arrangements had been extended and stuff for the stage, and um, some things rearranged quite dramatically. And so the producers basically asked me to get hands-on with it. So I went out to work on, I went out to New York to work on that. And that, So Nanny McPhee was in the background now, and this mm-hmm. is just before COVID, and I went, so that was really my first experience of working on a, on a, a stage musical, you know. Broadway. Wow. That's like trial by fire. It was, yeah. And I I learned so much from it. But they loved the movie so much that a lot of my job was getting getting the music back to feeling and sounding like that and getting the band to feel like a real band. And yeah, that was another another thing that had happened is they had a lot more of the cast playing in the New York Theatre Workshop version. Mm-hmm. And I said, we've really, the kind of idea of this band is getting a little bit lost in here. And I think it's fine for people to play now and again, but I think there's still got to be a story of a band. And so I went and instead of going into um, theatre rehearsal spaces, I took them into like a, well, where you would rehearse a rock band, you know. 
The yeah, like of, a studio or something, like a rental studio. I mean, just right, perhaps to, like a band, me standing in the middle of them. And, um, yeah. They loved it. The kids just loved playing it like that. You know, they weren't, I told them I put the sheet music away and, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that was different. Nanny McPhee is a completely other thing. That's more orchestrated. And I've got an orchestrator and we've just brought him on. So that's early days for me. But the music is much more complex and it's been written through the script. And, you know, so Sing Street, because it came from a movie, was a whole different process. Yeah. So, yeah. Did you take the kids to, like, the grimiest, ugliest, dirtiest spot in New York to play? Did you, like, yeah. give them the full-on, like, CBGB experience? Or, you know, did you find, like, a basement with leaky pipes and everything? And Pretty much. Right. <laughs> that's pretty that's pretty much a, any uh rehearsal any room in new york from yeah. experience i can tell you that yeah. <laughs> you can actually smell the carpet from here right it's like that sort of beer soaked carpet thing so uh with Nan- nanny mcphee also you're you're co-writing that the lyrics with emma is she actually writing them with you yeah yeah wow emma writes lyrics into the script and I will use as much of it as I can. Often there's too much, actually. Um, you know, like she'll write a lot of verses. Um, and depending on how the, you know, whatever the inspiration for the actual rhythm of the song is, they might change, but I'll keep as much as I can. And then I'll add and subtract from there. I don't really tend to, st- it, I was going to say, I don't tend to start the lyrical idea. It's because it comes from the script and it comes from Emma. So. When do we think this is going to be debuting or do we know yet? <laughs> it's just all starting up again because COVID closed it all down. Um, mm-hmm. We did a workshop late last year and I have one coming up in uh, the end of this month, actually. No, yeah, 27th of March, we start another two-week workshop. Um the idea is, was originally to get it on stage late this year, but I think that's over ambitious I think it will be you know more likely early next year or summer next year if, if nothing gets you know if nothing blows up <laughs> this is a naive question I guess but when you say you're workshopping it what does that what what does everyone do so we get a bunch of actors and um so early, earlier on we did some just table reads so everyone's just sitting around a table but in a workshop you might actually stage a whole scene with a song in it, or you might um, pull a pull a song to, apart and put it back together. You might, um, you know, but it's not just about the songs; it's actually about script as well. Okay, so you're yeah. just really trying to play around with the moving part. It's the step before rehearsals. You're kind of looking to see does this thing kind of all work together, and you know, do we have something? We we've talked a lot about recent. Uh, projects that you're working on so let's go back to the beginning talk a little bit about your early bands and about danny wilson and about your first you know having international success with with a, a your first big hit single what was mm. what was that like in your in your time of life so jed and i so there's really three main people in danny wilson it was me my brother kit who's five years younger than me and Jed, who's the same age as me, and he and I were at school together. And it was a Catholic school, and I remember, I must have been about 13 or 14 years old, and he used to play guitar at the mass. (laughs) I saw him sitting on the 
altar playing this really nice looking acoustic guitar. And I went, oh boy, he's a really good guitar player. So I, I got the courage up to go and talk to him. So from about the age of 14, we were in that whole Sing Street situation. Um, we had various names for the band and various members throughout that, but he and I always worked together. And then I, when I was 17, left school, went to art college and did like a year and a half, but my my soul was just aching because even though I loved all the I loved the social side of it, I loved all the artists and stuff, and I'm still great friends with loads of them, but I knew that music was my calling and I was just miserable every second that I felt I was on the wrong path, you know. Yeah. So Jed and I made this plot to basically move to London and we did the whole thing of living in a squat and we were there for three years playing gigs and all these dives. Um, we, we actually took our drummer with us and keyboard player and the keyboard player saw the squat and just walked out. He's got his brother to come and pick him up. And so oh. we were a three-piece band overnight. Drummer <laughs> um, oh stayed with us throughout the thing. And then immediately, basically three years into that, so I would have been, and I wrote Mary's Prayer during that period. And oh. off the first album, I wrote Davy in that squat. And I wrote, um, what else did I write? Broken China from that first album. But I... Jed and the drummer Brian, who later went on to join a band that did quite well in the States called Delamitri. Do you remember Delamitri? Yeah. Yeah. He was the drummer for Waking Hours and all that stuff. But basically, he and Jed had had enough, and this was three years in. I didn't want to leave, but they were just like, we're just we're going to rent a transit van, which is like a Ford Econoline kind of vibe. We're going to ditch everything in the back, and we're going back to Scotland. So I found myself going, I'll have to go with them. So I went, and as it turned out, it was a, it was kind of serendipitous in that we'd become a really good band, the songs had got better and all that through the London experience. But when we got back to Scotland, there was a couple of bands like Associates and things from our hometown that start, and from Glasgow as well, the Deacon Blue, Hugh, no, maybe not Hugh and Cry at that point, but Wet, Wet, Wet. There was a few bands mm. that started to make, Blue Nile, um, oh, yes. Started to do, you know, good things. And that brought the record companies mm-hmm. looking up to Scotland. Now, in Dundee, which is a smaller town, again, kind of weirdly fortunate, but a guy who was like the entertainments manager for the university decided he wanted to branch out and he he started being the entertainments guy in a club called Fat Sam's which is actually still there, um, although it's very different now. But it's like a super club now. But at that time, it was a it was a dive, but it was really music-based. And so you got all these cool bands coming through. I mean, I saw, you know, Prefab Sprout on their first tour. And, uh, wow. Know, wow. Everybody played that place, you know. Um, and I barely never left the place. I was, you know, I was there all the time because I wanted to see everything that went through it. And we played it a lot and we supported a lot of the bands. And there was a guy who was a local, he actually worked for the city council, but his obsession was music. And by night, he was a music journalist. His name was Bob Flynn, and he basically started to just write reviews from Scotland and send them to 
the big music press at the time was NME, Melody Maker, mm-hmm. Sounds. And he started to write for these. He became quite a well-known journalist and music journalist. And he saw us play in a little bar in Edinburgh, I believe. And he wrote this review for NME that was like, it was the 80s, you know, so it was like the shimmering glory of the winding melodies of rain <laughs> on our heads from the, whatever, you know. <laughs> One of these sort of over-the-top reviews. And all the record labels were like, who are this band? <laughs> and so they started to call Bob, the journalist, who we'd never even met at that point. So I got a call at my mum's house, like this Bob Flynn's looking for you. And... Um, that was the kind of the beginning of this kind of weird three months of like all the labels wanting to sign us. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had a choice wow. of every label. And we went with Virgin. Virgin America were just opening at the time. And so we were, again, really lucky. Virgin America had a whole cast and crew of amazing people that they'd hired from all these different labels. And they had no acts. <laughs> they had mm. cutting crew. And us, that was yeah. it. And so Cat and Crew had a hit. And they really put their weight behind Mary's Prayer. And I had never experienced... By this time, we'd got ourselves a manager who was very experienced, and he had a bit more of a handle on how it works. And, you know, the trajectory of a hit record in the United States is much, much slower than, the, than in the UK. In the UK, it's kind of like only... There's so few stations, and particularly at that time, um, that if you get play on Radio 1 or the the, the big independent station, mm-hmm. you're kind of on track to have a bit of a hit, and then if it gets up to a certain point, you will get Top of the Pops, and Top of the Pops, which appears in Sing Street as well, is the, was the big music show. So I guess it was yeah. like an American bandstand or something at that time. Mm-hmm. We released Mary's Prayer in the UK, I think, once and it got to like top 50 didn't do very well record company still believed in it and this was partly fueled by the fact that in the states it was kind of just slowly doing its thing and it kept going up and picking up more stations and so really if it wasn't for that for the djs in the states they probably would have given up after the first release but so the second time they released it it went to something like i don't know roughly speaking here it was something like number 25 and then at the end of the year, Radio 1, which was the biggest station, the BBC station, had a, a, a I was going to say a reader's poll, a listener's poll. They asked people to write in, call in, and vote for the song that they thought should have been a hit that year, which I'm guessing would have been 80, 86 probably or 87. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mary's Prayer won this poll by some big margin. Wow. wow. And the uh, record labels getting said, let's re-release it. And I was actually, funnily enough, I was fighting it. I was going, no, no, not again. <laughs> you know? um, but they released it, and then this time it sort of just went boom, and it went at number three on, on one chart, number two on another chart. But um, wow. that's... It was all, there was a lot of stuff going on at the same time. It's quite yeah. hard to sort of put it in any order. I would probably get the order of things wrong, but we, yeah. we toured the States with Simply Red on the back of the fact that the single was starting to go. Um, That's what I remember because I was like, I told you, strangely enough, I was interning at Virgin at that time. 
Amazing. I do remember that tour. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Gary, I wanted to ask you because um, I, I'm, I'm the, I'm the nerd of all this stuff out of all of us. This point in time in Scottish pop music in the mid eighties is phenomenally friggin' crazy. Cause you've got Aztec camera, you've got orange mm. juice, you've got simple minds and yeah. there literally there's this like whole, you know, you've got these, you know, you mentioned the associates, you've got, all this stuff coming out. I'm just wondering how much did you guys all feed off of each other as musicians? I mean, the, the, the art schools in Scotland are notorious between, you know, actors and comedians and musicians for just this mm -hmm. hub of creativity. And I'm just wondering how much do you think that environment and coming from that outside of, you know, um, Danny Wilson, but how much of that affected you today as a songwriter, but also just as somebody who loves music? Hugely in some departments and, and not much at all in other departments, which I'll try and explain. Yeah. But the um, we were never part of any scene and didn't really sound like the the kind of other bands of. Which is what I loved about the band too. So it sounded nothing um, like that. Yeah, you know. we sort of. But Billy McKenzie from the Associates was from Dundee and was also yeah. seen a lot at Fat Sam's. And so I knew Billy, absolutely adored his voice and adored the associates. They were a little bit in front of us. So when I was in the squat in London, they were on top of the pops doing um, Party Fears 2 and stuff. So that, the huge thing about that was that made it feel possible to me to kind of come from this kind of mm. little class town. And, um, and then it was... When we got back to Scotland, as I say, I met Billy, um, and he was always incredibly kind to me and really encouraging and lovely. The other bands I would meet when they came through town, but I wasn't really part of any scene. And uh, I mean, when I say I wasn't any part of any scene, there was no, I think Glasgow was more a place where all the bands knew one another and, and there was much more of that kind of thing, whereas Dundee was much smaller. Um, there was only really a couple of bands. Again, the associates, Billy would have been in London quite a lot at the time, so it was a big event when he'd walk into the into the club, you know. Though all of those bands, again, the ones that were in front of us, Orange Juice and stuff, they were very responsible for this thing of whether the record labels turned their lens onto Scotland. And it, we would never have happened if that had not happened, so I'm eternally yeah. grateful for that, you know. Um EPB also like mm. oh those yeah guys were yep absolutely yep. Um, there really was and there was a lot of bands that that didn't make it you know there was a lot of bands who were great um, who didn't make it but I don't know I, I remember that time really fondly um, and it is really musical I, I saw loads of bands there but I also saw as many English bands as and mm -hmm. you know as they were coming because they would come. They'd do the tour and they would play fat sounds. So um, I think it was a big part of the story, but musically that wasn't such a huge influence on us. We were we were really influenced by the records that I had sort of grown up obsessing about, which was you know because I was born in '62, so really my formative listening years was glam rock through to into the yeah. 
the, the late 70s brings you into the 80s. And so my, my heroes were David Bowie, <laughs> Steely Dan. I love Talking Heads. Um, but also my dad and my mum's record collection. She was into the Beach Boys. My, my dad was into Sinatra and Swing and mm-hmm. Duke Ellington. And so it was more a Bacharach. I, when when we first moved to London and we were staying in the squat, I would say that the band sounded more like a three-piece talking heads kind of a vibe, which is probably hard to imagine. But that's what <laughs> it seemed like you needed to be sounding like somebody else to to get a record deal, get any attention. And and sort of very quickly, I sort of what, what am I doing? This is mm. it. Just didn't feel like it was like I was wearing somebody else's suit, you know. So we did a few gigs like that, and then I. I um, sort of just really started to dig into my soul, like really the music that I loved. And that's when I sort of started to write things like Mary's Prayer and Davy and stuff. And and I knew when I started doing it, that the feeling was just like, this feels right. Now, it didn't mm-hmm. sound like anything else that was going on at the time. It really didn't sound like any of the other bands. So, um, yeah, so it wasn't really influenced by any of the Orange Juice or even Associates. That I, I loved all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. I do all the Blue Nile, but, but yeah, kind yeah. of doing our own thing musically. Oddly enough, when I listen to that first Danny Wilson record, um, I hear a little bit of Stevie Wonder in the keys, but that's probably oh, just me. No, no, no um, although I'm nowhere near as good on keys as Stevie Wonder, but the, the, uh, I always tell this story about the, it's the big, the most influential records in my life were all given to me for free in about the space of a week. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. One of them was my cousin was clearing out her record collection and she gave me, she said, she gave me David Bowie's Hunky Dory and Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. Oh my gosh. Which blew my fucking mind. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just incredible. And I just played them wall to wall, never stopped. <laughs> then I, a teacher at school had said to me, he, he, he was a teacher at school, but he also played guitar. And he told me, if you want to hear great guitar play and listen to Steely Dan. So my dad was part of some record club kind of thing. And they gave you a certain amount of free records a year if you signed up for this club. And so he asked me if I'd like a record. So I asked him for The Royal Scam by Steely Dan, which was their last album. And I just arrived, put it on the turntable, I was listening to it, and I was absolutely going, wow, this is amazing. And I went to my girlfriend at the time's house, and this is 1977, so I am 14 or something like that. Um, anyway, 15 maybe. And her, her older uh, brother had bought Asia by Steely Dan and hated it. And I and he and I walked in and he, he threw it to me across the room. He pretty much threw it at me and he goes, "Here, you'll like this shit." <laughs> yes. What? And it's like one of the best albums ever. Leapfrog, you know, and it starts with that. Blackout. And I was like, Jesus, no, mind blown. And that was the first band for me that kind of mixed the jazz that my dad was listening to with the kind of yeah you know, the sensibility that was more coming from David Bowie and Stevie mm. Wonder and stuff. But, yeah, so you definitely hear that for sure. You've got good ears. And you produce 
tons of records. I'm just kind of curious if you could kind of talk about your process of producing albums. Like, does do you? I, I'm not going to ask for names, but like, I mean, do you turn down projects? Do you look forward to like certain projects with people that are maybe outside of your musical wheelhouse, or just kind of can you kind of talk about like picking product projects and like the process of like producing somebody else in the studio? Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I don't tend to get hired as the kind of producers like let's hire that guy for this album. I mean, it has happened, but it's I come from a songwriter producer mm -hmm. school, really, and so because I learned to produce really making our own records and watching other producers, and you know, um, and then making demos. And I sort of knew that when I wanted to move into writing for other artists and with other artists that I was going to have to be able to make decent demos. And I was always kind of a wee bit ahead of the curve on that anyway. I always had good home recording equipment because I just obsessed. I loved recording. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I made my solo album for Virgin, 10 Short Songs, when the band split up. I made a, an album called 10 Short Songs About Love, which was my only solo record. I had seen the amount of money that Danny Wilson used to burn in studios like Olympic and Townhouse. And, and I, there was something in my instinct, possibly having come from living in the squat and stuff, was like, well, the record company can drop me and take all of this away tomorrow. And I, I kind of hated the idea that I couldn't make records because that was my obsession you know and so I basically said to them I want to take my recording advance and put a studio in my flat in London I was living in London by this time again for a second time and so I took the advance and I bought a mixing desk and I bought a two-inch tape uh, machine and some microphones and preamps and compressors and and I did some room treatment and I made that whole album in the flat and wow. that gave me the ability that when I moved into the writing production role to be able to do very good demos at home. One of the, actually the first major label thing that I got was an artist called Lauren Christie who went on to be a huge songwriter for other people. She wrote um, Complicated and Skater Boy and stuff for Avril, Avril Levine and many other huge hit records. But but Lauren was an artist from London and she was the first person that actually should move to LA, but she gave me a break as a producer and I produced her second album, Breed. And then quite quickly after that, Natalie Imbruglia's manager heard that album and asked me to write with Natalie. And I was able to, again, make the demos at home. And I did three or four tracks and they, they loved them, but they didn't consider me as producer. And so they, they started sending the songs out to other producers and they kept coming back to the demos and going, we love these demos. There's no, nothing that's coming back sounds as good as these demos. So I ended up producing probably 90% of that that album, which was the second, her second album coming off the back of Torn, which was a huge record. And so um, I've always had a home studio. I go out for big things like 
drums or strings and stuff, but most of the stuff I do is me working with an artist. I tend to play most of the stuff, most of the instrumentation myself, but as I'll bring in, as I say, if there's somebody that's a specialist in something, if I need a sax solo or I need a whatever, you know, but I'm, uh, the same the same way I make demos for whether it's Sing Street or whatever is the way I work with artists. And we tend to be writing the song in the studio while I'm creating the demo. Very often the the first lead vocal, the first vocal we record ends up being the one that goes on the record. That's just yeah. quite, kind of an amazing thing. It's so hard to recapture a vibe that you get on you catch on the day when somebody's just written the song, you know. Yes. Wow. That you just can't be so crazy. Mm. And to the point that sometimes I've worked with somebody in a hotel room on a laptop and it ends up being the lead vocal on the record because because you just can't get that vibe back again. It's so weird. Mm. It's real. There's a song, a particular song that I wanted to ask about, and that is Kill of the Night. Oh yeah, that's wow. a song that I absolutely love, and I'm just curious to know uh, what the it's ended up in a lot of like it was in Teen Wolf and um, and some other Halloween themed kind of things. But I'm just wondering what the initial inspiration was for that song. I was on a writing retreat in Bali that my pub or my ex publisher had invited me on, and. And it was great. And there was loads of great writers on it and great artists and stuff. But Bali being so close to Australia, New Zealand, had a few Australian and New Zealand artists on the retreat. One of them was Jin Wigmore. And the very first day I got put together with Jin and one of the guys from a band called The Presets, which is a they're really big in Australia, a big Australian electronic kind of like a synth pop kind of a band i guess i think i started jamming the guitar riff she she described what she wanted to do i'd never met her before and it was written in 20 minutes or something really oh, really wow. fast. and i didn't really think anything of it then and <laughs> julian it was julian from the presets put some synths on it and stuff so it actually sounded quite synthy this demo um mm. and then it went away and i forgot about it and then she did it put it on her album and the production on it was much more what you hear now, which is great. I really love the production. On it. Yeah. Um, I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> but it's just a freak song. Actually, if, if, if we've got time, I'll tell you this kind of crazy story that, and because Killer in the Night proves this thing. I, I signed to, when I was working in, in, when I was living in LA for the second time and I was working as a writer producer, um, my publisher was Network oh, Music Production. I was signed and, to Network. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> well, network, then you'll know that Network had a, a whole department, a sync department, sync being a synchronization of songs to movies. And oh, to you're movies. saying publishing, yeah? Publishing, yeah. Okay, no, I meant the label. label. Sorry, so that's right. different, right? Okay, gotcha. Uh, well, it started by the same guy, but... Th oh. the, yeah, they went in their own yeah. directions. Um, the um, sync department wanted, or the guy who signed me wanted me to have a meeting with the sync department and sort of talk about, like, to see if I can get them to pitch some of my songs for movies. And and so they came around to my studio, and I could tell that they just, it was 
dreadful. They were, I kept, they were feeling nothing. And, you know, one of them had a little notebook on it and was scribbling away. And, and I said, look, I can tell that this is not stuff that you're going to find easy to, to sink. Um, can you, instead of going this way around when I just keep playing you hundreds of songs, can you tell me what you find easy to sink? And they said, female, energy, empowerment. Um, I can't remember, but it was all these things, you know. Mm. And and I was like, oh, fuck you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then I wrote this song with Jin, and it was it was Jin's lyrical idea. I'm pretty sure my kill of the night, I think, was Jin's lyrical concept. Um, but the idea that she was in control and that mm. she was, you know, mm. going to take this guy home from the club and he was her kill of the night. Which is, uh-huh. you know, um, it just was a hit with whoever, you know, music supervisors. And it's the most synced song I've ever been involved in by a huge long shot because <laughs> the idea works for vampires and it works for yeah. you know, there's been so many people murdered for that song <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever been taken home from a club but, but you know right. <laughs> so. well there's uh, so many artists that you worked with that I would like love to hear stories about um, Skin, McFly, Demi Lovato, the Veronicas. Um, the one to me that I'm most interested in hearing because I was a big fan of hers when she first started out. The first four or five albums are some of my favorite records, and that is Julia Fordham. Oh, wow. And I yeah. know you did some co-writes uh, with mm-hmm. her. Can you talk yeah. about how that collaboration came about? Okay, so I knew Julia. We were signed to the same label. For my solo record, it was Virgin, but it was a subsidiary called Circa Records. And we were both signed to Circa. Um, Circa had, it was a great label, actually. They had, like, Massive Attack and Tricky, and they had oh, yeah. and um, They were really on fire. But the two, I signed to Circa thinking... This was a great independent vibey label, but it was just some virgin money. But the guys were doing so well that they were asked to take over Virgin. So almost two weeks after I signed, I found myself going back to the Virgin office again. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But like uh, Julia was signed to Circa. And she, I did a showcase for my solo album at, Ronnie Scott's club in London. And somewhere in the set, I played a new song that wasn't on the album. Um, it was called Hope, Prayer, and Time. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I seem to remember I just did it on acoustic guitar on my own. And then Julia was brought back into the dressing room. I think I'd met her before, so I don't think that was the first time that we met. But um, she said, Oh, I love that song, Hope, Prayer, and Time. And I said, no, it's just it's new, I you know, I haven't recorded it yet or anything. And then I got a call from her saying that she was recording it um, and or, or that she wanted to record it and would I be cool with that and could I send her the demo and a lyric and stuff, and I did, and I thought that's fantastic. And then I was in L.A. I'm trying to remember who I was working with, but I was in L.A. for something, 
And I got an email from Julia saying, or oh, recording your song this week in LA and really excited. And I said, oh, I'm in LA. She said, well, will you come and sing background vocals? So that's when I met Larry Klein, the producer as well, which he was, he was producing. And um, so we just hit it off then. That was her recording my song. And then when she went to start, I think it was her next album, she was coming through London and she said, can we do some sessions together? And we wrote, I think, four or five songs for our next album, something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't think I produced them. I think Larry produced them again. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah, she's, she is absolutely lovely, super talented, and yeah. just puts her heart and soul into everything. I played it when she was in London at that time. I played a couple of shows with her as well, where I just got up with her and played piano and guitar and things. We became good, really good pals. Yeah. She's fantastic. And early on, basically didn't do any rewrites, I mean, or any co writes. She was only doing, you know, her own stuff. So it's mm -hmm. interesting that she sort of gravitated to you as a co-writing partner. I think my, in that area, my, i.e. writing and producing with other artists, and many of them female, interestingly enough, but I, I think because I was an artist, I'm very sympathetic to the artist as opposed to sympathetic to the record label. Yeah. And so I'm trying to, Obviously, I want something that the record label are going to love, but my my first port of call is, what do you want to do, you know? And so, and I'm also really aware of how stressful recording, particularly vocals, can mm. be. I've mm -hmm. smashed a few pairs of headphones in my time when I can get Totally. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty damn stressful when that red light goes on, you know, and so... Most of my work has been word of mouth, one artist telling another artist. Natalie and Brulia told Skin to work with me. And, you know, that's that. It. It's, uh, I think, my experience on their side means that, um, I, well, hopefully I make it as easy as possible for them, you know, mm -hmm. and as creative as possible. <laughs> yeah, such a lot of stuff. I know. That was, we we, yeah, we covered a lot. There's so much more to do, but we I covered know. a lot. Yeah, there's a ton. We'll have to have you back some other yeah. time and and talk about the rest of all this. Once you've stuff. seen, yeah, once you've seen Flora and Son and uh, yeah, exactly, and Nanny and, McPhee and Nanny. Once Nanny starts, yeah, yeah. the round, well, you just reach out anytime. Okay, we enjoy. we definitely will. You know your stuff. Yeah, we try to talk to people who know their stuff. <laughs> say hi to Emma. <laughs> yeah, just tell it Dame Emma we say hi. <laughs> do you have to call her Dame Emma or do you get to call her Emma? She actually signs off the Dame sometimes. Uh, that's great. Now, when you get when you get texts from her or her phone rings, does it say Dame Emma or just Emma? Right, this says Emma Thompson. But the the the, the, the fun. Well, there's two funny stories. One is that. When she she this is pre COVID, but she came up to Scotland to work on Nanny McPhee with me, and uh, we had a really bad snowstorm, and she got snowed in and couldn't get back to London for like a week and a half or something. Oh gosh! And so she calls she calls herself the Lodger. She <laughs> basically never left my house for like two weeks. she was meant to be there for three days, and she was there for two weeks. So oh she's called the Lodger. But um, no, when I when when I first got the call to work with her. I got a call from Lindsay Duran, who Duran, who was a producer. She's based in LA. She was a producer, film producer, on the original movie. 
of Nanny McPhee. And she heard Sing Street and she basically asked the producer of that film, how do I get in touch with this guy? And I got a kind of cold call from Lindsay and she told me about it. And she said, Emma has a place in Scotland, so she'll probably call you when she's up in Scotland. And then a few, a month or so went by and I sort of put it to the back of my mind. I didn't know if it was going to come to anything. And then um, one day my phone went and it was an unknown number. Now, I have a friend who you might know because he was a quite well-known um, artist in the 80s. His name was Ali Thompson. And his daughter is called Emily. And so this, I was actually in the shower and my phone went, picked up a message and it was a really short message and it was a girl with an English accent, which Emily does. And it just said, hi, it's M. Thompson. I'm in Scotland. Give me a call. And I, <laughs> I thought it's Ali's daughter. <laughs> she's in she's in Scotland. I thought that's weird, but I'll call her back. So I called back, and as the phone was ringing, I just went, "Fuck!" It's <laughs> <Emma Thompson." laughs> it just sort of dawned on me that I'm calling Emma Thompson, and then she answered instantly, and I had to quickly go into what pain. You know? <laughs> Get your head straight. It's yeah, Emma. Exactly. <laughs> I, had to do, I had to do a quick. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's absolutely lovely and amazing to work with. So ridiculously talented. Oh, that's so amazing. cool. It's good to know. That's nice to know. Thank and, you so much. It has been fantastic hearing all of your stories and hearing about your amazing career. And for folks mm -hmm. listening, highly recommend you go and watch Sing Street. It's a really, really lovely film with some fantastic music in it. Thank you. And go and dig up all of Gary's other work, yes. Spotify, mm -hmm. iTunes, wherever you, or even, you know, on CD. Go mm -hmm. and, and find this stuff because it's really good. If you haven't heard Mary's Prayer, find it. Mm -hmm. Great stuff. Yeah. Thank you so, so Gary, thank you so much for hanging out with us and, and sharing all your stories with us. It's been so much fun. Been my absolute pleasure, and it's lovely to meet you, Steph. After so many email chats, yes, you too. I'll definitely <laughs> email you. Like old pals. I know, I know, I love it. Well, <laughs> and well, I'll, uh, I'll definitely uh, send you an email, and and you know, after this, just we'll keep in touch. Thank you, guys. Thank you. No, that was that was a super fun interview. Oh man, he's great so guy. cool. Oh man. Yeah, I he's love so hearing all funny this. too. Yeah, he is. He's great. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to throw in an ad here for one of the other shows on our network. And we'll be back in 30 seconds. Don't go anywhere. Drew Leiter here, inviting you to join Cletus Jacobs and I as we journey into a new era of the DC Universe, Dawn of the DC. Join us each week as we review comics, television, and movies. There might even be a surprise guest or two along the way. Thanks for your continued support, and we look forward to talking more DC with you. The Earth Station DCU podcast comes out weekly and is part of the ESO Network. All right, we are back. Who's got some picks of the week? Stephanie, start us off with your pick of the week. Picks okay, my pick of, of the week, week. <laughs> is from the band The National, and it's called Tropic Morning News. And I heard it, I will tell you that I heard it first on Rob's Juxtaposition show last week. And I actually really loved it. Yeah, I was, um, I was sort of like 
listening in the background, but that song caught my ear and I was like, who is, and I immediately texted you and I was like, this song, this song. So, <laughs> you know, Rob, for what, you, what was the title of the album that, that it's? Uh, first two pages of Frankenstein. <laughs> so and I want to hear that. So I'm excited to hear that. Yes. Full. Yeah. That's my pick. All they're right. Fantastic. All right, Rob. I know your pick is picks. So uh, throw them at us. Okay. Okay. I'm just going to say that I literally completely stopped working on both of the radio things that I do to completely put in a song. Steph, it's probably the equivalent of you like recording a song and then saying, stop, I'm starting all over. Oh, uh-huh. okay. Right? Yeah. So, like, basically, I had a pre record done and I had to completely gut it to include another song and drop oh. one. I'd make the agonizing decision of which four minute one to cut. But um, so I don't know if you guys have ever heard of uh, Ella Sapi, but mm-hmm. she is a Inuit Canadian mm-hmm. musician. Mm-hmm. She has recorded Unmati Dani Sama, which is basically a cover of Blondie's Heart of Glass in Inuit. Yes, I've heard of this. It's amazing. Um, yes. It is incredible. Um you will cry. It is that amazing. You will cry, <laughs> right? Um, it's literally just been my, sorry, Steph, my earworm of the week. Yes. Um, need, need more than one. <laughs> and it is absolutely fantastic. Um, cool. Wow. Yeah, so that's one of them. Uh, Frankie Rose has a new record out. Frankie Rose used to be in Crystal Stilts and Vivian Girls and a bunch of bands. Uh, but it's called Love is Projection. It's really fantastic. Um, and... I am once again going to fly the flag for the reds, pinks, and purples. This guy, Glenn Donaldson, he's in a studio more than Bob Perry. Um, He makes a record about every three days. Uh, His new one is called The Town That Cursed Your Name. Um, I've talked about him before, but he's amazing and he's fantastic and um, literally has a bedroom studio and just makes an album, I think, every every four hours. And then um, so on March 2nd, Wayne Shorter died. And Wayne Shorter um, is this um, terrific saxophonist and composer. He played with Miles Davis um, from like 64 to 1970-ish. He was on a bunch of these really great Miles Davis records, but he made a really great record called Juju in 1964 that if you really want to get a feel of like the genius of Wayne Shorter, um, just listen to that. It's pretty It's pretty amazing. So, All right. There you go. Well, I've got a, I got a couple of things that happened this week. Uh, first of all, the 1975 was the musical guest on SNL last night, and they were fantastic. Uh, they're one of the more recent bands that I really appreciate a lot, and it was great to see them on SNL. They were fantastic. Um, two new releases uh, this past week. First of all, Peter Gabriel has been putting out a couple of singles here and there every time there's a full moon. Uh, so basically once a month, he's put out a new <laughs> single from the upcoming album, which still does not have a release date on it. But the third single has come out playing for time. And it's it's a very quiet, uh, very introspective kind of thing. I will. It's a great song. It's absolutely lovely. It's not my favorite of the three. It's probably my mm-hmm. least favorite, but that that's still... I mean, it's such an amazing song that saying it's my third favorite of three, it's still really high on the list because it's it's so great. Yeah. Um, and then, yes. Yes. Yeah. 
has a new album coming out on May 19, which is Mirror to the Sky. And they just released the first single, which is Cut from the Stars. <laughs> and for the current lineup, it's not bad. It's it, I would say it's I'm just not a I, I love Yes. I've loved Yes for decades. I, I'm not as engaged with the music that the current lineup has written and, and released um, in, over the last few years. In 2021, they released an album called The Quest, and the first single was called The Ice Bridge, and it was okay. It was really cool. Um, my problem with Modern Yes is the lyrics and melodies that John lead singer John Davidson comes up with are just awkward i just mm -hmm. don't there i just don't feel any hooks i don't feel like it's a smooth melody they're always really angular and it, it just it just seems like it's hard for it, it's it's not an easy song to like grab hold of you know what i mean mm -hmm. it's not one that you would easily just sing along with you know so other than that though this is it's the yeah. new song cut from the stars is pretty great uh, I, I i enjoyed it. i'm looking forward to the album the album apparently has a 10 and a 14 minute song on it so oh boy i'm excited about that because that's yes getting back to what it does best hopefully so since we talked about peter gabriel and since we talked about peter gabriel's new album and, and it still doesn't have a release date but they have released tour dates so the album has got to be happening pretty soon because he's going to be on tour very soon. And that leads me into a little announcement about next week's show. We are going to, as long as everything, everything is lined up, yes. everything is confirmed. So as long as everything stays the way it is next week, we will be interviewing Mr. Tony Levin. Yes. Oh, holy smokes. <laughs> I am so excited. For it's those who awesome. aren't familiar, he is the premier bass player in the world. He has played with every possible artist you can imagine. He's been with Gabriel for a long, long time. He's on the new album. He's on the new Gabriel tour. So that's going to form a lot of what we talk about next week. But there's a million other things that we can get into with Mr. Levin. So definitely don't miss that one. All right, so I guess that's it for this week. Yeah. So, Steph, how yes. about you tell people where they can find you? Sure, you can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music. You can find me on Instagram at there underscore are underscore birds. You can find me, I have a website at thereirebirds.com also. Uh, you can find me on Bandcamp under just my name, Stephanie Seymour. And, of course, on all the streaming platforms everywhere. Our best friend, Anthony Williams, he has another podcast called Watchers in the Fourth Dimension that is watching its way through Doctor Who from the very beginning and commenting on every story that they watch. It's a fantastic show. If you're a Who fan, you should go listen to it. Rob, where can people find you? <sighs> okay, so you can find me on the uh, theneedcoffee.com podcast Weekend Justice. Uh, you also can find me Wednesday nights on KDHX in St. Louis, uh, hosting Juxtaposition. Uh, it's Wednesdays from 7 to 9 uh, Central, uh, so figure that out however you need to work that. Uh, do, the like yeah, do the math. Yeah, do the math. 
and all the shows are archived on the archive stream. So if you're busy, if you're listening to the Peter Gabriel or Stephanie's records uh, or reading Alan's books, you can um, listen to it later on the archive stream. Everything is archived for two weeks. Um, so maybe you're feeding your llama um, or you maybe you're last taking week a walk. When he mentioned- yeah, or you're taking a walk, whatever you got to do, you can listen to it later. Um, also, um, I don't think I've talked about this yet, but you I, have not, and I'm excited for you to I'm tell excited. people about it. So I am uh, doing a weekly radio program on Louder Than War Radio, which is through Louder Than War, the online magazine, and uh, Empire of John Rob. And uh, I have a show called Antics. It's technically called Antics with Rob Levy. Um, from six to eight Mondays, Greenwich Mean Time, which is they're they're six hours ahead of the Midwest, so it's twelve to two in the midwest one to three eastern just look at the time and type into whatever random time converter you have if you <laughs> want to listen um but all kinds of stuff i i get to dive a little deeper and uh do some longer songs and uh, i don't have to play psas and, and other things so i've got more time to play with and um you and also, show number one was fantastic I it is available on mixcloud you can listen to it archived mm-hmm. on mixcloud they have an app um, it too is archived, so go to Louder Than War Radio. Um, I will tell you that like the amount of shows on there are pretty incredible. Their metal shows amazing. Um, they've just got a, a ton of stuff. And I would be remiss if I did not um, give a big shout out of thanks to producer to the stars, Mr. Bob Perry, for his uh, console and patience and um, calmness during this <laughs> frantic time. Of, well, Watergate like, of Watergate-like anxiety. <laughs> he so, was happy um, to help, and the and, show, it, it's awesome, And, and Bob Perry does not own a llama. Um, <laughs> so listen to that if you can. Uh, show number two is coming out this week. I'm working on number three now. Um, Great. It's incredibly weird to be doing this, um, but it's also fun. Wow. That is amazing. So congratulations on that. Yeah. I'm so excited that because we've known about this for a little while and we've not been able to talk about it. So I'm so glad that you're finally it's running. It, the first one is out and that we actually get to tell people about it. It's very cool. <sighs> yeah, I know. Uh. <laughs> so you can also hang around on the Internet at CosmicCreative.com, K-O-Z-M-I-C, creative.com. And that's got a list of all of the books I've written, some books that I've published by other authors and other podcasts that I'm involved in, like Earth Station Trek, which is a, I bet you'll never guess it, it's a Star Trek podcast. <laughs> So I'm also working on the relaunch of my, not necessarily a relaunch, but a a revamping of my other, my Doctor Who podcast, Doctor Who A to Z. I've got a new co-host that's starting with me. So that'll be getting onto a regular schedule now, which I'm very excited about. Awesome. All right. You better be back here next week when we interview Tony Levin. Holy crap. Holy crap. I'm excited. It's going to be an intense interview. So have a great week. We will see you all very, very soon. Take care. Do good in the world and keep rocking on. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Public store which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, 
your station for all things geek.